Hi, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings in inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. I am joined by my co-host, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, it is fantastic to see you. How are you doing? Oh, it's always so good to see you, Rob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You know, I, I noticed you, you, you we're both a little cash today. Yeah. We're, I mean, people can't see us casual than the podcast, you. but yeah, I'm wearing a hoodie, wearing a headband, kind of threw my hair up in a bun. Well, we post links to the, there's there's visuals that go out on social media, right? So, true. you know, this is good. This is going to show up, right? We, yeah, but I'm, sure. I'm unshaven and, and you're, you know, a little more, you got a, like a sweatshirt on a today. Yeah, we have no guests today. So like, so I always, I, I always do most of my hair and makeup, uh, you know, because I know that there's a guest every week. So I'll be like 10 minutes before we're recording. I'm like, yeah. all right, I have to shave for this person. And oh, I'll, you're you know, so apply. good. Yeah. Usually uh, I'm like, oh, I yeah. should like brush my hair. But today I was like, no, we can throw it up. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Rob's yeah, going to get. Just the two of us. Yeah. Just the two of us. We were earlier talking with our uh, producer, Ari, and I think they were just laughing at us, like hilariously, just being like, what is wrong with like, you guys just show up, just like, whatever, we're here, <laughs> we're doing it. Well, we're we're old pros at this point, yeah. Nadia. Well, thank you for showing up as um, authentically as you would like to. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Should we get to the deeds? There's a lot going on this week. Yes. Let's let's start. Okay. Go, go, go ahead and tell me what you got for us. Okay. So last week it was determined that Goldman Sachs will have to pay $215 million to settle a large group okay. of former and current female employees where systemic discrimination was at play again. The lawsuit covers about 2,800 women who have held associate and vice president positions at the bank's U.S. investment banking, investment management, and securities divisions from around the early 2000s up until late March this past year. The lawsuit was first filed in 2010. Like, this is wild. 2010. Right. Yeah. And it alleged that Goldman discriminated against women in terms of compensation, promotion, performance evaluations. And uh, business opportunities, so like career advancement. It also alleges that female employees were paid less than their equally ranked male counterparts and had fewer opportunities to move up ranks. So we're saddened, but not surprised. And uh, I will let you kind of share your thoughts on this. Well, it's, yeah, it's uh, 2010. Hopefully there have been some changes over the course of what the last 13 years I did think about it as you were reading that, that $215 million, I was like, well, I guess Goldman Sachs probably looks around their couch cushions. Yeah, or, right? I know. And, it's and, like pennies and finds, to them. And can find $215 million to pay these 2,800 women. Right. So thinking about the lawsuit, I have long thought that I could leverage my experience, my expertise into some sort of analytics work mm-hmm. on discrimination cases. Yeah. I have felt that from previous roles that the lawyers that made the request for information to be able to prove something like this didn't necessarily know what they were looking at or looking for. And so this story made me think that maybe that's not a great idea. The fact that this lawsuit was filed in 2010 and it took this long to come to a resolution. And it's not like it was actually resolved. It's not like they actually got what they were looking for. Yeah. But the 2,800 women, they'll, you know, they'll get paid, right? They'll get something. I hope so. Yeah, for sure. What it always, I will say, Nadia, Right. So based on my experience that I think performance data 
is just an absolute goldmine of proof of discrimination. Mm. And I'm always interested in how companies, what kind of quantitative measure people are applying to performance and what kind of documentation there is in performance data. And so it's just a, it's a really quantified expression of bias if you, if you dig into a lot of this stuff. Sure. So think about it. Like, so for most, the second half of the 21st century, right? A company's codified performance ratings. Think about how biased those people processes were yeah. for, you know, from 1950 on. And yeah. people that have haven't been improved upon. So it's just a, right. it's a treasure trove of data. And so I would think that, I don't know. I don't know if companies are thinking about what do I do with this data or if, if, if there are lawyers out there looking at, hey, should we dig into this? Or if there yeah. are class action suits that could take advantage of this. But it seems to me like it's just there, there's a lot of opportunities for suits like this to move forward if people knew what they were looking for. Are you surprised that this is happening in the investment industry, like in the investment world? Because no. it's such a fast pace, right? <laughs> like I'm not either. It's interesting because like, we absolutely have talked about this in previous episodes. And you know, my observation is just even partnering with some organizations that are in the investment world. Like it's a fast paced environment. There's very little flexibility. The women that do tend to enter into this industry tend to leave it because there's a lack of flexibility. There is pay disparities and there's also a mm -hmm. lack of opportunities for advancement. So like women are leaving this industry because of that discrimination. So if, you know, Goldman Sachs is kind of, you know, one of these top investment organizations. So these these other ones, these little ones, they better follow suit and get some pay equity analysis in there, start making some changes because people are going to recognize that they are not being treated fairly and lawsuits will happen. So um, there's nothing that I that surprises me from the banking sector, right? I mean, they pay fines every week for some sort of something. <laughs> for yeah. some sort of it's pennies uh, to them, impropriety. Which is so frustrating. Yeah, and, yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me. But all, all good points. And I do think that since 2010, there has been quite a bit of progress in terms of, and I think lawsuits like this, where they knew that eventually they're going to have to pay out for it, mm -hmm. and other banks looked at it as well, then they have some impact on the behavior of the banks, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Shall we move on? All right, Nadia. So next story, and Nadia, you know, this next segment of the show, it's going to be for mature audiences only. So okay. if there's a, you know, if there's, a, if there's a kid listening, you may want to cover their ears. More than a year ago, a group of dancers at a renowned topless dive bar in Los Angeles embarked on a journey to secure their rights by unionizing. After countless efforts and unwavering perseverance, their hard work paid off. And in a historic vote, the dancers achieved something remarkable. They became the first and only group of organized strippers in the United States of America. God bless America. And God so, America. Nadia, I didn't know how much went into this. Yeah. And so they worked hard for this. They spent a lot of time on this. For eight months, the strippers and their supporters, they picketed weekly in front of the mm -hmm. Star Garden in North Hollywood. It's one of the busiest bars of this type. And on some of their busiest nights, the dancers would pick it. Each night they had a party. They wore theme costumes. They put on their own runway shows. And they gave directions to other strip clubs for potential patrons. So really great work, really great activism yeah. for these particular dancers. What did you think about this one? It's great. Listen, they're seeking higher compensation, safer working conditions. It's things that we're all looking for to feel psychologically safe at work. And so I'm all for it. I think Amazon could follow suit. I think Starbucks could continue to follow suit. <laughs> so get it, y'all. I think like, yeah, these dancers, strippers, like they are also employees. And so they deserve 
um, you know, higher compensation and, and fair equity in terms of wages and working conditions just as much as anyone else. So I'm happy for them. Good job. I, I like that. Amazon can learn mm. from these dancers. Come right? on, Amazon. Starbucks can learn. Right. So, yeah, no, yeah. these workers have the same rights to a safe, fair environment. Um, you know, what else is there? We applaud, we applaud their efforts. Absolutely. All right. We'll be right back after this break with a couple more stories from this past week. Welcome back, folks. All right, Rob, we got a couple more stories here. Yeah. So big one from the New York Times this week, an article titled Why Some Companies Are Saying Diversity and Belonging Instead of Diversity and Inclusion caused quite a stir in our world, the DEI world. In about 5,000 words, the article managed to confuse me to the point that I don't know what belonging is and I don't know what inclusion is anymore, but um, it, it oh starts by describing a unique approach, I'm doing air quotes for our listeners, to belonging training, which sounds very similar to the first unconscious bias training that I probably attended in around 2014, where okay. the object is to show everyone that they have bias. And so this was all presented as remarkably fresh and an innovative way in order to get folks on board. Mm. Nadia, mm. go ahead and start us <laughs> off. What do you got for us? So, okay. So just so I understand too, you had, you had said that there's like belonging training as well. So it's like a concept and an actual, we're renaming unconscious bias training to now belonging training. Is that what you kind of had taken from that? No, I didn't take anything. I didn't understand anything. So that's, okay. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, I didn't understand it all. Okay. What I'm saying is that the way that yeah. they presenting this new concept of belonging, uh, they, they uh, laid out a scenario in which a trainer was giving a training to a group of mostly male audience, mostly my, white male cis audience. And it sounded okay. just like unconscious bias training from yeah, right. eight, 10 years ago. Yeah, sure. Well, so here are my thoughts. And we discussed this in season one, probably in season two, like belonging is absolutely this concept, right? Like it's a sense of self. So it, should it be discussed? Absolutely. Because it, I think it's a term that's that has been presented in kind of defining how someone feels in terms of how they feel accepted or valued or respected in the workplace. What I do know about this term, because I've studied it at length, is that it's based in the psychological literature and it has powerful kind of long and short term implications on a person's like positive psychological outcomes. So when we think of like how someone describes how they feel, how they belong is just someone's feelings of being accepted, valued and respected. Right. Mm -hmm. But similar terms we use to describe inclusion. So when I read this article and you and I kind of started talking about it, part of me was like, okay, is this just a way to sacrifice terms because of like the anti-wokeness movement? Mm -hmm. And then it did make me, and you would send me an additional article, which I'm sure you're going to mention as well. But then it made me really think about like, why did the DEI movement in the workplace start? Mm -hmm. And I think that is what is really missing and what is really key and powerful to conversations that we have in the workplace related to DEI. If you want to add the B, go ahead as an outcome of right. all of the work. Um, but I, I do think that when we add belonging or, or replace 
DEI with belonging. And we're kind of having this argument about what the term should be or the acronym should be. I feel like we're missing the point and we're disguising mm-hmm. the actual concepts of like white supremacy, anti-racism, and kind of all of the other dimensions of diversity that happen to right. people and, right. and you know identities. So I'll pause there because I know you I have- did, I did tell you that I feel like when people are discussing the terms inclusion and belonging, that it reminds me of the scene in Talladega Nights where they're sitting around the dinner table and everyone's trying to think about or uh, offer their own way that they see Jesus, right? And people are like, yeah. well, I see inclusion as this and I see belonging as this. And then someone else is like, well, I actually see inclusion like this. And and I'm just like, I just, I just want to scream sometimes when, yeah. when people start having that conversation. I am working okay. on a presentation right now that centers belonging. And we're doing that because we see a real angle as, as an entry point for this particular yeah client group, their stage of maturity, uh, their, you know, the size of the organization, the, the makeup of that group demographically. And so we use it as an entry point, but we don't want to replace the concepts of, of diversity, equity, inclusion with this very, um, you know, with this, with this concept of belonging, which is centering the discomfort of white people uh, right. in organizations as opposed to doing the real hard work of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. So, um, yeah, the, the, uh, you know, we, we also had a conversation, Nadia, about how the fact that we don't think that we're doing anything new a lot of times, right. We're often talking about effective management and leadership and that yeah. in 2023, of course, an effective manager or leader would have to have facility with the concepts of, diversity, equity, inclusion, and obviously the yeah. impact on belonging in their organization, their team. So I don't care what you call it either. We had Maggie Roquet uh, from Zapier. They call it Dibby, right? And and I worked with orgs that call it ID&E. Uh, it's more about the actions that you're taking, right, in the organization. And, you know, if you take out any of the elements, you're not going to get the results that you're looking for. Yeah. One thing I think is really critical to bring up is like, the literature on belonging, it considers like this socio-ecological interaction. Um, when we define kind of what belongingness means, there's multiple systems at play that measure factors such as like well-being, um, your social interactions in the workplace with people, like your your job satisfaction, your self-esteem, even considerations of like what happens outside of the workplace. Um, how engaged are you? So your disengagement in work, turnover, mm-hmm. right? So all of these things inform belonging. And the body of literature on like conceptualizing belonging, it all comes down to one thing. And this is like a basic fundamental human need to want to be part of something, right? Sure. And so I think it's interesting because like translated in the workplace, belonging is an outcome of work. Um, and all of the work that, DEI practitioners are doing now. I feel like I, I feel I don't know. It just it feels like we're trying to make people feel comfortable about facing or having more tough conversations, which right. are like considering differences, embracing differences, becoming more aware. And at the end of the day, like be- belonging is yeah, it's a concept that is part of that entire system of DE and I. Um, and so I think I think there's power in practitioners, including myself, as I become still like more self-aware to acknowledge like the historical roots 
of DEI in America um, and how that goes back to the 60s, right? Like the civil rights movement, you had um, the anti-discrimination legislations in that time, the Equal Pay Act was incorporated then. And I think those are really defining moments in our history that are rooted as underpinnings for the work that we're doing today. And it's a disservice if we don't talk about that when we do DEI work. Um, so now I right. feel like I'm ranting. <laughs> no, I think that's great. And I appreciate you bringing that perspective. I know that you, you do quite a bit of work in this field, right? In terms of uh, the, the study and, and literature review that you do. Um, in the same light, so we're talking about belonging, I did want to turn you and our listeners on to an article in Nonprofit Quarterly that came out this a uh, couple of weeks ago. It's the, the business case for DEI reinforces anti-Black sentiment, and that's by Amira Barger. And so Barger argues that DEI makes four cases for its, uh, you know, for its importance. And so there's a case for market alignment, a moral case, an economic case, and a results case, all of which mm. have their rules in capitalism. And yeah. that greater emphasis is needed on the intersectionality of personal, interpersonal, institutional, and the societal shifts necessary to create workplaces with true diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so it just brings up a lot for me as well, just like the belonging article did, uh, yeah. you know, for you. And, and as a person that is often called upon to make the business case or has been in that position of making the business case for DEI through data. Mm -hmm. And I've really tried to steer away from it recently. The, you know, first, the business case is misunderstood. So that doesn't help. I think that it's often right. presented as if you do this, then you get this. And it really emphasizes to underrepresented folks, uh, marginalized or minoritized folks that. Uh, we'll take your oppression seriously if there's money in it for us. And yeah. I think that that's, that's problematic as well. So Bad so, behaviors. Yeah, yeah. So any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, that's such a great point because I struggle with this too in terms of like pointing out the business case to leaders, especially when you're, you're talking to someone of the dominant group, so like a, a white male. Um, and oftentimes you're right. It's like they're incentivized because there's something on the other side in terms of capital, right? Capitalism. So I challenge not only like other practitioners, but myself to really dig deeper about how we can explain the business case in a way that doesn't tokenize and further perpetuate like, you know, folks that are marginalized. Um, because it's interesting, even just this morning, I got a text from someone who said, I'm trying to coach someone on recruitment. And it seems like the people that have been recruited are starting to be resented by their colleagues. Mm. And I was like, oh, tell me more about that. Why? And there was such a spike of recruiting marginalized groups of people, particularly black at this one company, that they are now being, um, there's now this like rivalry or you've been hired because of X, Y, and Z, not because of your qualifications or your background, or you add to the team because of your differences or because of your background and your perspective and experience. And so now there's this dimension of jealousy or just this culture that's being built that's not creating great behaviors. And mm -hmm. so I do challenge folks to think about the business case from a perspective that does not perpetuate marginalized identities being tokenized mm -hmm. or being weaponized. Um, and then, of course, like you said, for only to, you know, build revenue or to gain profit. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's a great article, actually. We should post it. 
I think we should share it um, so other folks can read it as well. For sure. For sure. Well, thanks for that. Great discussion, Nadia. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with Rants and Raves. Welcome back, everyone, to Inclusive Collective. Nadia, it is that time. We uh, had a good discussion so far. Let's hear, you have a rant for us to, 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 to uh, close a, us out today. I have a rant, and it's about your least favorite person. Oh, no. No. <laughs> so Ron DeSantis, a.k.a. Ronnie D., last week he officially banned DE9 Florida colleges, so he signed a law into effect last Monday, a bill that dismantles DEI at Florida's public universities and colleges. The law bans courses that distort significant <laughs> historical events, teach mm. identity politics, or are based on theories that systemic racism, sexism, oppression, or privilege are inherent in the institutions of the U.S., et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yeah, my rant here is that he's an idiot. His politics are idiotic. <laughs> and I got to say this because... Um, this is real for many of us and our peers, but to our peers in the DEI, HR, academic spaces, to the students and the professors who are missing out on the teaching of real history, of inequities, injustice, being misinformed on how this country was built, shaped, and formed, we see you, we're thinking of you, and either vote him out or move to Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really get the part that if there was a misrepresentation of historical events, I didn't realize yeah. that was part of it. So yeah. they basically have to would just have to throw out all of their history courses. Yeah, distort right? significant all... historical events. Yeah. Yeah. Like what everything. about insignificant? Everything gets tough. Distort? I'm going to distort those on this show. I'm going to misrepresent insignificant historical events, right? And, and no one can say <laughs> anything about it. There you I go. I do that all the time, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Most of the time when I'm speaking. So, oh but God. take a moment to reflect, Nadia, on how much damage that he's doing to Florida. I think that these the universities themselves will suffer. The yeah. students, obviously, as you as you laid out. But Disney just pulled out of a massive development project. Huge, as well, yeah. Uh, costing yeah. the state, you know, a couple billion dollars, over 2,000 jobs, over DeSantis' posturing around the company's support for LGBTQ um, IA issues. And so, you know, his claim to fame, if you remember, right, where does this person, I was trying to, like, where does this person even come from? Where is he, is he was against masks, right? That's the yeah. one thing that he's ever done or been or had any, you know, kind of any kind of uh, thoughts on. Yeah. And, you know, congratulations, because that was, it was easy to do in a state where everyone was outside, right? All winter, right? So, right. you know, he, <laughs> right. he, his, so, so the, the one thing he has going for him is Florida's climate. That's the only thing that he's ever done right, was he lived in a warm so state sad. where he could tell everyone not yeah. to wear masks. And so, you know, this, the Ron DeSantis story ends badly for him. Unfortunately, we're all have to, you know, put up with it for a, at least a short time longer, hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully not too much longer. Hopefully not, not too much longer. Who knows what announcements might be made in the next few weeks, but yeah. So, all right. So on a positive note, Nadia. Let's end on remember, a positive note. Were, tell me. <laughs> if you remember, if you remember last week, all the way back to last week, I was not loving the Oscars, right? Do you remember that? I remember that? this, yeah. And, and so a new list, which I have found, uh, and, and, and there's, to me, a much more impressive way to recognize movies. And it's called the inclusion list. 
Okay. Okay. So this is a data-driven ranking of movies from 2019 to 2022, led by Dr. L. Stacy Smith and the USC Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. This list, uh, which has a website, highlights the top distributors associated with the movies on the list, names eight individuals as the top producers of, uh, of diverse and inclusive films, and, the, and also highlights the top directors for inclusion across the time evaluated. So let's check out the list. Now, are you ready? Most ready. inclusive films. Most inclusive films. Number one, The Woman King. You saw The Woman okay. King, right? You really like The Woman King? I didn't see it yet, but I, I haven't oh, okay. seen it yet. Yeah. Um, uh, it's on farewell. my list. On my okay. list now because it's on the inclusion list. And that's what I right. follow now to figure out okay. what movies are good. The <laughs> Farewell. Other notables include number 15, Parasite. Number 22, Wakanda yeah. Forever. Yeah, um, it's a great movie. You know, ranking at the bottom was any movie with Richard Dreyfus, curiously. Oh. I don't know. <laughs> and the most oh, inclusive wow. studio. Was Universal. So Universal has oh. had some success with movies like Harriet, Queen and Slim. Did you see Queen and Slim? No. Oh, I, so good. I don't, I see more series Everybody than knows. I see movies, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't, right, I, yeah. I watch movies on planes. That's it. If I'm not, I'm not, uh, if I'm not a plane, I'm not watching a movie. Yeah. MGM was the lowest ranking of the major studios. And okay. Will Packer was the producer with the highest inclusion score. So I am okay. now. I'm going to, we're going to have this link in the show notes. We're going to put it in our newsletter. We're going to, that's great. Uh, gonna, this is how I'm going to choose my movies now. The inclusion list. Okay. That's great. I love that. Fantastic. Should, we should probably share that list with um, our friends at Solil Space too. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Very good. Well, Rob, thank you for this week. Great news updates here. Folks, Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media. We'd love to hear from you. So send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refilion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok for now. We're not in Montana. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, check out me at nasconsultants.com and rob at tecanoconsulting.com. Um, thank you again, folks. Rob, great episode. Thank you. We'll be back next week. We love you, Montana. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.